Anything and everything you throw at me, I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone. I'm going to think creative. I'm going to change the rules. I'm going to change the rules. And in so doing, what the Gospel of Matthew tells us in these women's stories, in so doing, they ensure the life of the nation because they didn't get the memo, because they got creative, because they took action, these women end up saving the nation. This story today about Tamar, and we have pictures of the five women that we can put up there. The story of Tamar is that um, she, and I lost my space. Here we go. Let's go back over here. It's the first sermon of the new year. So uh, we're going to look at all five of them, and we start today with Tamar. And it's interesting because when you look at the lineage, there are, in these five women in Jesus' lineage, there are four Gentiles. That says you something about what Matthew's talking about. Of the five women, first, Matthew mentions five women, which we often don't get women's names in the Bible. That's important. And second, four of these women are not Jewish. Four of these women come from other tribes, other places. And then the last one's a teenager. So four women from other places and a teenager in these stories we're going to be looking at in January. And I, I think you might call them underdogs. You might call them outsiders. So that's why the book got its title. But I think when they say, nothing you throw at me is going to stop me, they then become the game changers. These underdogs and these outsiders then become the game changers so that Israel ends up having hope. And Tamar's story is actually not often told, and it interrupts. We love the Joseph stories. You know, he gets thrown into the pit and gets taken off, and then the famine comes. And, and between Joseph getting taken off and the fast, the famine, is Tamar. So this story kind of interrupts it. And it lets you know that Jesus' lineage doesn't come from the Joseph story. Jesus' lineage comes from this little interruption, this story from Tamar. It is the underdogs who ended up in these parts of Matthew saving the people. The underdogs who ended up saving the people. There's a writer that we were using as a devotion all last year, Brian McLaren. Uh, we make the road by walking. And one of his quotes about these women is this. We might say that Jesus isn't entering humanity from the top with a kind of trickle-down grace, but rather from the bottom with grace that rises from the grassroots up. Jesus enters from the margins, from the edges, grace that rises from the grassroots up, grace that doesn't get the memo, grace that says let's take action together and change the world so that it can be what we know God is calling it to be. Let's do that. Let's take that action. Can we be those kind of grassroots people? I think I have a picture of grass and roots in case you can't imagine it up there. So there it is. Okay. Uh, but how do we work together, all of that grass, all of the individuals, to be able to change the world for good, change the world for God? Now, when we were talking about this series, Underdogs and Outsiders, the staff got excited and got creative in staff meeting one day, and they said, we need to do the theme song from the cartoon, Underdog. And I, and, and I said, oh, that sounds really good. We'll do the theme from the tune, the tune from Underdog. And so outside the staff meeting, we're in a little reception area, and I'm going, here he comes to save the day. And Angela looks at me in the most condescending way she could. She comes up right next to me, and she goes, Troy, that's Mighty Mouse. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So 
you have the lyrics to Underdog. You should have gotten a little bookmark with those lyrics on it. And so now, if you forgot who Underdog was, we're going to actually play it for you now. And if you feel like singing along, you are welcome to sing along. So as you hear this story, you got to imagine Tamar in her little outfit and her little cape and a little U on her chest as changing the world the way it needs to be. And one of the verses of this song I really like, that second one, when in this world the headlines read of those whose hearts are filled with greed, who rob and steal from those in need, to right this wrong with blinding speed goes underdog. Well, we read those headlines yesterday and the day before, and we'll probably be reading them in this year, too. This is a norm in our life, in our world, in our culture, that we need to constantly continuing to sow more grassroots so that we are able to make a difference in this world. We are able to change it into what we understand God's call to love is about. From those whose hearts are filled with greed. Interesting. This day, when we go to this story, I want you to hear a little bit about what it meant, what Tamara is going through in her day and her time. And I've got this quote from the Jewish Women's Archive that I'd like you to read with me. According to Near Eastern custom, known from Middle Assyrian laws, if a man has no son over 10 years old, get that, 10 years old, if a man has no son over 10 years old, he could perform the leveret obligation himself. That means to make sure that any of his sons who's died wives gets to have a child, gets to particularly have a son. And so the Judah, being the parent in this case, could have done this. If he does not, the woman is declared a widow, and she is free to marry again. But Judah, who is perhaps afraid of Tamar's lethal character, because if you've read the whole story, you know, two sons die. She marries two of his sons, and both of them are dead. So, so Judah's thinking she's the one. Bad luck, even though the Bible says his sons were evil. You know, but Judah says she's the one. And he sends her to her father's house to live as a widow. He doesn't do the duty and sends her to his father's house. So he doesn't also free her to marry another. He sends her to his father's house. So unlike other widows, she cannot remarry and must stay chaste on the pain of death. She is in limbo. Well, whether Tamar was in limbo or not, she didn't get the memo. She did not get the memo that she's just supposed to stay there and not have a life anymore. You know, and there's more than just, you know, having a child involved in this. This is about money, economics, class. This is about a lot of things because, see, Tamar was married to the oldest son. And the oldest son in this day and time inherited a double share of the father's estate. So the husband Tamar had was due a double share of the estate. And with no male grandson, 
that was going to pass her by. And in Jewish law, it was important that you had heirs to that son. And so you would marry her to the next brother and the next brother, but whichever son she had wasn't theirs. It was the oldest son's son. It was always seen as the oldest son's son. And so that grandson would get the double share of the estate. So as you see the story going on, Judah first thinks, oh, my goodness, I don't want to do this. She's, she's killing my boys. And then he could have gone in and performed the duty himself, but he chose not to and puts her in limbo, which she tries to work her way out of. And we shouldn't be surprised by this behavior from Judah. Judah is the one that helped organize his brothers so that Joseph gets taken in slavery. Judah is the one who's able to watch his father grieve his beloved son as dead without doing anything for his father. So Judah, in this story, it says, was afraid of being ridiculed. You know, that shouldn't surprise us about his character. He's just afraid of being ridiculed. And it might seem weird, the story about the goat. You know, I sent her a goat, but we couldn't find her. Well, if you're talking about a woman in the profession of selling her body in that day and time, temple prostitute or not, she would go hungry without the goat. So I tried. I don't know how hard he tried, but I tried. We couldn't find her anymore. So there's a lot at stake here in Judah's behavior, and Tamar's behavior tells us something about the character of Judah and may also tell us something about the character of his two sons that died, that God said were not holy folk. So she's in limbo. She didn't get the memo, and she decides to do something about it. You know, this passage is used horribly in many ways. The second son's name is Onan, and you may have heard of that sin of Onanism. Have any of you raised your hand in your history? You're okay. This is the sin that some churches have said means that you can only be sexual if you are procreative. There's no other reason at all to be sexual in this world unless you are both fertile you know, childbearing ages and are procreative is what some church policies have come out of this passage because Onan chooses not to, impreg- to marry her, but chooses instead to get her pregnant to spill his seed, it goes. You know, so goodness, Onan saw, if Tamar gets pregnant, I lose a double share of the estate. Why should I want to get her pregnant? I lose a double share of the estate. So this is about greed in some ways. This is not about procreation, contraception, any of those things in our world today that we have come to know are goods in the world to prevent overpopulation, to also make people have more choice in their life. But Onan, that story simply told this day has caused a lot of harm around the world, the way it's been misinterpreted in some churches policies. What's interesting is at the end of the story, I don't know if you noticed it, but Judah then says, I was the one that was wrong. Tamar is the righteous one. So I don't know how many times in the Bible you get this, but it does happen more than once. The prostitute is the righteous one. Think about it. The sex worker is the righteous one. Tamar, who went and pretended to be a temple prostitute, bedded her father-in-law so that she may have an heir, which she does have, who then becomes the line to Jesus, is the righteous one. 
Don't forget elsewhere in prophets, they've said, you know, the prostitutes are going to go into heaven before you. So here we are looking at this scripture where she's called a righteous one for her behavior, for her deception, for her creative undoing of the wrongness that Judah has caused. I think we can learn something from Tamar. I think we can learn something from her. Well, in my life, this, this is an interesting story because I remember a friend who, like me, was called into ministry. Unlike me, my friend was the golden boy of the church. Being the golden boy of the church, that meant he went to Harvard and then to Perkins and was six foot too tall, was the quarterback of the high school football team, dated the cheerleader. That was not me. <laughs> that was not me. Uh, and, and, and he talked about being in ministry, and I knew that that was important to him in his life. And there was a time when he was going to a church. And he's now pastor of a tall steeple church. And he, uh, I was worried about him. I was worried about him because I thought, what will happen if he has to be pastoral and compassionate with someone that's had something wrong happen in their life? He's had not a thing wrong happen in his life. He doesn't know what it's like to struggle to pay the mortgage. He doesn't know what it's like to have even a close death in his family. He didn't know any of those things. And here he's going to be a pastor of a church. And I thought, oh, goodness, I hope, I hope it works. That doesn't mean he was a bad person. It just means I wondered, how could he connect to the experience of others? And then I started hearing the story of the tales of the fact that he and his wife, who is also a pastor, couldn't have children. And I thought, oh, okay, perfection isn't quite there anymore. Let's, let's see, let's follow the story. And so about a year and a half later, I get a Christmas letter. And in the Christmas letter, he tells the world, after a year and a half of us trying to get pregnant and using all these medical tests, the best procedures, spending all this money, using the insurance and all this sort of stuff, we found out that the problem is not with her. Hear that? A year and a half... You know, you might have got the memo, it takes two to make a baby. You know, it just takes two to have a baby. You know, and so he found out, he said, I'm sterile. And I wondered, okay, maybe now his heart can break open. Maybe now, not being perfect, there may be a way for him to be able to hear stories of other people whose lives are difficult and are challenging. But what does it mean, a year and a half? And he's a good person, a year and a half to have your wife poked and prodded before you ever get your sperm count checked. Amazing, isn't it? Sometimes I think Judah is alive and well in our world. Sometimes I do. Then I want to tell you another story of a woman who talked to me. She was about 45. Um, we met at a restaurant, Mexican restaurant in Richmond down there close to downtown. And she was talking to me in a little booth there, and it was pretty private. And she shared with me how she grieved to this day that in her early 20s that she had had an abortion. And she was telling the story of pain in her life and that it, there was grief around it. And then she shared a little bit more and then she said what she couldn't really get over, what she couldn't get over was the fact that actually she at that time had had two abortions and the pain that that was still in her life. I listened to it, and I heard it, and, and I listened to what some of the circumstances were in her life, what some of the things going on in her life were at that time, the relationships. You know, now these decades later and sober, she's going through some of this grief process. 
And I listened to her to try and help her heal, to help pray with her for what it would mean to have that lifted from her, to carry that grief to God and have it be released. Because I did not believe God was shaming or blaming or punishing her for the rest of her life, that she needed to be free from it. What does it mean that we do this to our people in this world, that they carry such scars and wounds with them their whole life? The third story I want to tell with you is about yesterday. Yesterday, my sister and her husband came to visit with us, and they brought this puzzle. They brought this puzzle for us to put together, and it's a big puzzle, and I have a picture of it for you up there. We're very proud. We got it done. We're very proud. All together, we, all these thousand pieces, we got them together and got them put together in this puzzle. We had to walk away from it and come back and look at it from a different angle. We had to do different things to be able to get to the end of this puzzle. But what I want to share with you, if you look at it, right in the blue section, up in the middle, there is, by the TV, upper left-hand corner of the TV, there is a missing piece. After all this hard work, we scoured the floor, the rug, the carpet. We checked the dog's mouth, the cat's mouth, you know, just for this, this puzzle piece. And it just was not there. And after all this hard work, we thought, we, we, we've got it. We're done. We know what it's about. We know what it says. And, and some of these things, by the way, were horrible. These are TV dinners. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> looking, back, looking back at those. One of them had gumballs in it. But um, the missing piece... And so what that reminded me of for today is a lot of times when we're talking about Tamar and people who need to fight for their own right to have children or fight for their right to not have children, sometimes we want to put a slogan to it. Sometimes we want to make it very simple when actually it's very complex. There's more to it than what the act is in itself. And, and I, I want to use a new word you may not have heard yet, but it's been around for a while because this is not about being anti-choice or pro-choice. This is not about being anti-life or pro-life. This is not about any of those things. This is about actual justice. This is about reproductive justice because it's deeper and more complicated than any of the slogans let us know. It's deeper and more complicated than any of those things. So I want to share with you two slides from two different groups about what they talk about when they talk about reproductive justice. And Tamar says, I have a right to have a son. I have a right to a double share. And so we talk about this today because of where this story brings us. Sister Song is a group uh, that has three core reproductive justice principles. They believe every woman has the right to decide if and when she will have a baby and the conditions under which she will give birth. Decide if she will not have a baby and her options for preventing or ending a pregnancy. Parent the child she already has with the necessary social supports and safe environments and healthy communities and without fear of violence from individuals or the government. To decide yes, to decide no, to decide how I can re raise this child in health and in wholeness. That's a bigger picture than yes or no and slogans. And another quote from another group, Asian Americans uh, for Reproductive Justice, Asian Communities. Reproductive justice is achieved when women, girls, and individuals have the social, economic, and political power and resources to make healthy decisions about our bodies, sexuality, and reproduction for ourselves, our families, and our communities. 
women from the margins speaking out on what justice would look like for them. Sister Song goes on to say, a person's decisions are linked to the conditions of her community, and those conditions are not a matter of individual choice and access. Choice is a word of privilege. For example, a woman cannot make an individual decision about her body if she is not a part of, if she is part of a community whose human rights as a group are violated, such as through environmental dangers or insufficient quality health care. Reproductive justice addresses issues of population control, bodily self-determination, immigrants' rights, economic and environmental justice, sovereignty, and militarism and criminal injustices that limit individual human rights because of group or community oppressions. All of those affect your freedom. All of those take away your options. Judah can be alive and well in the policies we create. This authority figure can say, no, you can do this. No, you can do this. But from Tamar's story, we hear the scripture lifting up. Don't get that memo. Be creative. Take action. And I think Jesus says something about this. And I want to put up a scripture from Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. While Jesus was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. But Jesus said, blessed rather is the person who hears God's will and does it. You know, it's a nice thing to say. Hey, Jesus, Mary has some good breasts and a good womb. Bless Mary's uterus. Bless it. You know, but Jesus says, my mom is worth more than breasts and a uterus. My mom is a whole being. My mom blessed me immensely, and blessed is this person who hears God's will and does it. As Mary said yes to God, bless this person who says yes and does it. So Jesus immediately takes the focus off of the uterus and puts the focus on the whole person. And not just the whole person, but all the relationships that the person is in, what their choices are even possible, and their capacity to take action. I just read headlines this day about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of Texas. Y'all familiar with that? Religious Freedom Restoration Act of Texas. They passed it when they didn't like it that there was marriage equality because they wanted to get huge exemptions for faith about not having to do what the law required. And so there were headlines just yesterday in Reuters. They reported that there's another injunction in Texas, against health care having to be provided to women around contraception, around other options in childbirth, and also around health care for transgender persons, based on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. These things are not benign. They have effects on us. They have effects on who we love. They have effects on the world around us. But I invite us to get this news, read the headlines like the song said, and say, nothing you can throw at me, you know, is going to bring me down. One, two, three, victory. I invite us to be tomorrow as we hear these stories. You know, and if you're a man, you may feel like this has nothing to do with you, but I want to tell you it has everything to do with you. You are a moral agent and need to be involved in making the world 
a better place of justice for all God's children. So be creative. Take matters into your own hands. And if you get the memo, memo that you're being disruptive, throw it away. Be creative. Move from being the underdog to being the game changer. Take action. Amen.